So, um, for those, I thought we'd just do a brief review. For those of you who weren't here last week, this Lenten season, we are looking at the fulfillment in, of the prophecies of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the Old Testament. And the reason we're doing that is because at the end of Luke, three times at the end of Luke, and actually a couple more times in the book, Jesus tells the apostles that they are slow to understand and that the Son of Man had to be crucified, had to be arrested by the authorities, had to die, and then had to be resurrected from the dead. And Luke closes with Jesus spending the last few days of his life on earth teaching them, it is said, about why this had to happen this way. And of course, he was teaching them from the Psalms, from the law, and from the prophets. So we're doing a little study of six weeks to sort of uh, fulfill and do for ourselves what Jesus did for the, the apostles. Now, I thought to myself, uh, last week I, we read from those particular provisions of Luke. This week I want to start our class by reading from Peter, uh, who also makes reference to exactly the same pattern by Jesus before he was ascended into heaven. So in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 12, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, I don't know if you could follow that, but there's just a whole lot in that little section of 1 Peter because he's saying that the prophets, they were already filled with the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of Christ was already empowering them uh, to give a prophecy uh, that would be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ because they were looking forward to that salvation that Christ was going to bring. Um, how this happens, we hardly even can understand. But somehow God was working in the minds and in the hearts of the writers of the Old Testament so that they would speak to us and give us that information that would allow us to understand the meaning of the Christ, to understand what it is Christ was all about. And this week, I'm glad, this week we're going to talk about really the fundamental basics of what Christ was all about because we'll spend a good bit of our time in Genesis. Uh, so with that, um, someone read for us on the first day, on the first day, uh, the first prophecy and the first fulfillment that we have for the week. Does anybody have your little booklet? 
we are going to get more booklets. We, we, we have 30 a week in the class. We got 50, and they're all gone. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're going to have to get more. <laughs> can somebody read it? I'll read it if somebody can't. Read loud. Uh, no, week one, day one. Yes, the prophecy. And somebody read the fulfillment that we put down. You're going to see there's a lot of fulfillment here. Anybody got that from the... And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So uh, this particular prophecy occurs in the Garden of Eden. Uh, to get, um, the first principle I want to get us clear about today is this, that it's very important not just to read the prophecy and whatever little fulfillment I chose. In many cases, I had more than one choice to make. Uh, but to try to look at the context. Often people complain about what's called proof texting. I've been in seminary uh, a lot, and I found out that everybody proof texts. Uh, pastors pr have to proof text because we have to give a sermon and we can't read the whole Bible to everybody every week. Uh, so we have to choose proofs. And in seminary, some of the professors would complain about uh, conservatives pr proof texting, and then I would sit there and watch them proof text from the liberal point of view. So we all do it. We all do it, and we have to have a guard against it. And so the guard against it is to read the context. So I thought this morning I'd start out by let's, why is it that in, by explaining, why is it that in Genesis, uh, right away there's this prophecy that the serpent has, will bite the heel of the man, but that the man will eventually crush the serpent. What's going on? What's the story? Uh, what is God pointing toward in this verse? So we know the story, I think, if we think about it for just a minute, but the story is like this. Uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, the earth is perfect. Uh, God uh, creates a home for the human race, and then He places the human race inside of that home, and He tells them, you're just to take care of the home. Uh, but the story goes on by the second chapter to come to a fairly bad ending. Uh, God puts the, men, the man and the woman in the garden. And then in Genesis 2, uh, God gives a warning. He says, the Lord God took the man and put them in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. By the way, uh, sometimes we think that if we hadn't sinned, there would be no work. I think we now can see uh, God, there was never a promise we would never have to work. Uh, but we were intended, I don't know how many of you keep a garden. I used to keep a garden in Brownsville when I was a young pastor. But believe me, it's, always, it's hard work. 
There's always something wrong in the garden. There's always weeds to pull. There's always something that's not growing properly. There's always something that has to be taken out and replanted. There's never an end to work in the garden. And if your garden is as big as the planet Earth, we can assume that there was going to be a lot of work, a lot of work to keep it in good shape. So he says, you may surely eat of the tree, of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Uh, so that God tells them that they're free to do anything, but sin is not one of the things they are free to do. And I think the image of eating is, I think, an important one because it's not just looking at it. It's not just being tempted by it. It's eating it. It's doing it. It's ingesting sin into our very beings. And we all know we've all done that. If we think about it, we've, we've all done that. Uh, I was thinking this week uh, about a decision I hadn't thought about in years. I made a decision years and years and years ago. Um, and I realized this week that that decision was profoundly stupid and wrong. Uh, and it hasn't had terrible consequences in my life. It just took my life in this particular direction that probably would have been better if it had never gone in. Well, we all do that, don't we? We make decisions often that we know in our hearts there's something not right here. And we do it, and it takes our life in a direction, and we have trouble getting back to where we think we ought to be. So God warns the man and the woman that if they eat of the tree, they will surely die. What happens? They eat of the tree. They eat of the tree. And they immediately suffer a spiritual death. That is, for the first time, they are separated from God. For the first time, they no longer have a fellowship with God. They're now on their own devices, and they are unable to make the right decisions all the time. And just to let you know, if we kept reading on Genesis, the chapters of Genesis from this point all the way to the call of Abraham are nothing but bad decisions by the human race. That's the story. The story is all about bad decisions all the way to Abraham. So the context for this is that if we sin, we suffer consequences, and those consequences are going to be great. And not only do we get to suffer the consequences, but God prophesies to the serpent that eventually I'm going to undo this. Eventually, the consequences of the temptation in the garden are going to be overcome uh, by the man. And so the question is, who's the man? Uh, one of the, my favorite verses occurs right after the birth of Cain, because if you remember, Eve has the baby, and she says, I have gotten the man. What is she thinking there? She's thinking, this is the man. You know, it was quick, we, we sinned, we got thrown out of the garden, we had a baby, the Savior's here, it's all going to be over. Has that been the human experience? No, it has not been our human experience. Uh, the Old Testament itself, this part of the Old Testament was written about 4,000 years ago. Uh, so uh, 4,000 years plus however many years you want to add to the 4,000, uh, we've been inside the consequences of sin awaiting the Savior. At the time Jesus was born... Uh, they, the Jews had been waiting for 2,000 at least years uh, for the birth of the one that would undo the sin in the garden. 
And we've already read in two fulfillments, but I decided to stop a bit today and go to Romans. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, I think I marked it. Hopefully I did mark it. Romans chapter 5. All right. So if you turn to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But when God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. So... This principle I've been trying to get to you, not only is there a, a text, a prophecy, and a fulfillment, but the whole of Scripture. I could, I could read from virtually any letter of Paul's and get find verses that would be like this one. Uh, for the whole of Scripture, it is taught that somehow, through one person, there's going to be a reconciliation, that is, a rejoining of the human race to what it ought to be, and that that reconciliation the writers of the New Testament believed, was Jesus Christ. So I, I think one of the things Jesus was probably teaching the apostles during that last period of weeks he was with them was this truth, that his death somehow was absolutely necessary so that a human race that was not capable of escaping the consequences of sin and being reconciled to God could be reconciled with God. And the New Testament is univocal that Jesus was the one who did that. So it's not just one verse or even two or three verses, it's the story. It's the whole story. Uh, and so really it's important to get this fact in our mind this week, particularly this is the first week in Lent. I don't know, when you all grew up, most of you are roughly my age, but we grew up sort of at the end of an era, most of us here, and my parents always during Lent would say, well, that's something that the Catholics do. <laughs> we Presbyterians, not being sinners, don't do that. <laughs> uh, but th the fact is, what Lent is, and I think it's profound for all of us, is it's a period of time, roughly six-week period of time, that we uh, can come to grips with ourselves. We can come to grips with ourselves. Uh, this morning, uh, if you were reading the lectionary, the lectionary psalm is, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins the Lord has washed away. Uh, so that Lent is a time for us to confront our sinfulness, not so that we can wallow in our sinfulness. That's not the point. The point is, it is in confessing that sinfulness that we receive the forgiveness of that sinfulness so that we may be restored to the joy of the gospel. So the purpose of Lent is joy. The joy we will, we will celebrate on Easter morning. 
but there's work to be done between now and Easter morning. That's what I would like to suggest to all of us. Between now and Easter morning, let's truly celebrate Lent, not by confronting, it's very easy for me to confront Kathy's sins. You know, I, I, it's easy for me to do that. <laughs> not to, confront, to confront our own sins. To confront who we really are. Uh, to look at ourselves closely and the things we've done and continue to do uh, that may be separating us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And she'll help you with that. Uh, Kathy will point that out to me. Actually, on the way home <laughs> today. Uh, uh, but... So take the time to do the study. Take the time to look inward during Lent. I think that the purpose of fasting and giving up something for Lent is, um, is useful. Uh, I was joking with Kathy, you know, we've been in this 40 days of prayer, 30 days of prayer during February, and I have a tendency, if I drink a glass of wine with dinner, my stomach hurts, and so I'd eat crackers uh, to sort of put something on my stomach. So I gave up crackers for February. <laughs> That may not sound like a big sacrifice, but Triscuits are really kind of like manna from heaven. And uh, but I told Kathy, one of the things I want to continue on with a little uh, Lenten observation, because I got to the point where I didn't even want crackers, so every time I thought about crackers, I didn't pray. It didn't, my, my fasting wasn't really working the way it was supposed to work, because it wasn't driving me to God. I was just so proud that I wasn't eating crackers. So... Um, that's the first part of it. Confront our sin. Confront our sin. We have been tempted. All of us have been tempted. All of us have responded to that temptation by not resisting that temptation. And therefore, all of us need forgiveness for our sins. All human beings do that. Well, except one. Uh, the second reading today that I will uh, point to you, we're not going to read it because we really don't have time, but the second, the gospel reading for today in the lectionary comes from Matthew. comes from Matthew. Matthew 4, uh, verses 1 through 11, and those verses are the temptation of Jesus. Well, I'm not going to read it because it would take a long time to read the 11 verses, but you know what the temptations are. He's, he's in the wilderness and he's hungry. He's been driven there by the Holy Spirit. And uh, the first temptation is bread. Well, the temptation of bread is the temptation we all face to satisfy our physical needs, which are legitimate, by the way, <laughs> through a means that God is not authorized. Okay, so that's the temptation. Uh, God didn't authorize Jesus to turn stones into bread, and he didn't do it to satisfy his hunger. The second one, if you will remember, was to throw himself down from the temple. Uh, and have angels pick him up before he hit the ground. Uh, or in other words, the temptation to glory. Imagine what would have happened if he had thrown himself down from the parrot to the highest point of the temple and angels had swooped down and picked him up. And he, would have been, he would have been on CNN Roman, Rome for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, so that that temptation we all face to seek glory through means that God has not authorized us to seek glory. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, if you will worship me, uh, all the kingdoms of the earth shall be yours. And that's the temptation we all face to seek power, to seek position, uh, to seek wealth, uh, to, to, I, to seek the benefit of idols. 
It's a remarkable to me how often Paul says in his letters that the search for wealth is an idol. <laughs> we don't talk a lot about that, but over and over and over again, uh, Paul identifies greed and idolatry as being one and the same thing, uh, that greed is a form of idolatry. Uh, we're, I tell people, it's, we're, we are not different than the people of the ancient world. We are not different. We're just more sophisticated. We, are, we don't make the golden idol and put it in the front of our house. Uh, we, we make the idol and we put it in our heart. And then we worship that idol, whatever it might be. Park it in my garage. What? Park it in the, we park it in the garage, yeah. That's another one of my sins. I, I really want a Jaguar. Um, now I want an electric Jaguar. Um, so we all need to confront those three areas of life where we may, in fact, be sinners and we are not even aware of it. You know, for example, I'm a bit of a workaholic. Our society basically tells workaholics, keep going, boy, you're doing great. You know, so that our society basically does not confront us with that. I think it's beginning to change a little bit, but it just didn't during my, my working career. That was not... Hard work was basically the harder you work, the more the boss said, great, and the better you felt about yourself. So that let's look at ourselves during Lent. That's the part of it. And I don't want to get to um, the next part of the prophecy for the week. If somebody will turn now to day two. We're going to go back to Genesis. This is the prophecy from Genesis chapter, tw- pardon me, what did I do? 12. Uh, Verses 1 through 3. Somebody read that for us, if you will. So that um, this particular prophecy uh, occurs many generations after Abraham, uh, pardon me, Adam and Eve. Uh, and Abraham, he is a man. He is wandering. He's a nomad. Uh, if those of you who have been to Israel, you may have been to Bedouin camps. If you just look at the Bedouins in Israel, that's pretty much who he was. Uh, he wandered with his flocks. He was not an inconsiderable man. Uh, we know that because he had flocks and he had servants of the flocks, which means he had enough flocks that he himself wasn't capable of managing all of this. He was sort of like the big farm manager. Uh, and he had others that were doing, hands that were doing the work. So that he was an important tribal leader. But he had a problem. What's the problem? What was Abraham's problem? He had no child. He had no heir. He had no one to leave it all to. Uh, and uh, he says that my heir is Eliezer of Damascus, one of my servants. So he, the only person he has to leave it to is this servant that he trusts and, and likes. Uh, so he wants a son. Uh, I, I often use this to teach. All of our decisions, even our good ones, are motivated. Abraham didn't believe God for no reason. He had a need that needed to be solved And he was motivated by that need that he had that he wanted solved. And what's the problem with seeking a solution on his own strength? He was an old man. 
And his wife was beyond the age of childbearing, so it was physically impossible for him to have a child so that he had no recourse but to believe in God. How many of us have lived on our own strength until that moment we came to a time in our life when we had nothing, we, no way we could rely upon ourselves because we were incapable? That is human nature. We, we shouldn't feel bad. It's human nature to try to rely on ourselves until we reach the end of ourselves. Abraham is at the end of himself. He wants something very badly. He can't get it by any human means. God promises him that he will have a son and that through that son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this son is not just going to be a blessing to Abraham. It is going to be a blessing to Abraham. It's going to be a blessing to the whole world. So once again, God is entering human history to make a point in words from which later on we're going to be able to see God was fulfilling them, those words, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so with that, I'll get someone to read, um, if you will, um, the fulfillment from Matthew 1.1, while I turn to the next one. Somebody read Matthew 1, 1. Okay, and then I'm going to look here at Romans. Once again, we're going to be back in Romans chapter. We're not going to be in 5, we're going to be in 4. So it says this, For the promise to Abraham, I'm at 4.13, for any of you who want to write it down, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We're all children of Abraham by faith. Uh, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I'm not going to do it, but if we went back to Galatians, Paul repeats this, not word for word, but the same concept. He does it over and over again, that the promise made to Abraham uh, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that by the same faith that Abraham showed, uh, we also can become children of God and become heirs of the same promise. Uh, this, by the way, should be important to anyone here who's not Jewish ethnically, uh, because this is the ground in which we get engrafted into the kingdom of God. Uh, for the Jews, the promises of God were genetically transferred to the children of Israel. You got to be a child of Yahweh by being a Jew, physically. But after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it is realized that it is by the Spirit that one becomes a child of God, and so that it is by faith that we all 
can be children of God, not just one single genetic people. Not just one single genetic people, but all people can become part of the kingdom of God. Now, this particular one I want to give you, I've already given you one principle. The principle is read all of Scripture in interpreting any part of Scripture uh, because we can all be led astray if we do not read all of Scripture. Um, and we're going to see kind of how Luther goes astray here in just a minute. But um, notice here that we see another principle that goes on in this particular passage. I could read the next passage, but I think we don't have time. And that is that not only is our prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus, but there are sort of intermediate fulfillments that we get of the promise. What's Abraham's intermediate fulfillment of the promise? Isaac, he has the son. The, son is, the promise is intermediately filled. If we were going to get there, and we're not going to have time to get there today, the last of the, the prom, promises from Genesis I was going to cover today is the promise that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So we know that the eternal fulfillment of that promise is Jesus, but what's the intermediate fulfillment of the promise? David. David. So the promise is fulfilled in history so that we human beings in our own history can understand the fulfillment of the promise, but the promise is bigger than any intermediate fulfillment, and it goes to the end of time. And I might add, uh, if I had time to teach Revelation, Revelation sort of is the vision John has of the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, the ultimate outside of history fulfillment of the promise. Judah and so all of the ten tribes go, and it's Judah and those that are really around Jerusalem. For those of you, too bad Bob Fuller's not here. He knows this better than I do. Uh, and they took up the map, but basically the kingdoms of Judah and the kingdom of Benjamin sort of surround Jerusalem, so that when everybody else gets taken into captivity, but they don't take down Jerusalem, those two tribes avoid the Assyrian conquest. That's, that's another story. So I want to I talk about this um, principle we have that in our own lives, we do see intermediate fulfillments of the promise. And we should look for and treasure those intermediate fulfillments of the promise. Now, for example, we are all promised eternal life in Christ. And we're all promised forgiveness of sins. We're, always, we're promised the joy of the gospel uh, but inside of our little troubled lives, we do get intermediate fulfillments of that promise. We feel the kingdom of God is present once in a while. We can see that God is at work in our lives. We can see that we're making progress in the Christian life. And these little intermediate uh, promises aren't the fulfillment. It's not heaven, uh, but they're there, and we should treasure them. Kathy and I were talking about a friend of ours who, she came out of a cult, and she's sort of troubled by that. Um, she's concluded recently that if we really believe we'll never be sick, we'll never grow old, we'll never die, uh, we'll never have problems with our children, that if we just have enough faith, we won't have problems in this life. Well, uh, I'm sort of a realist. I, I, I just have never experienced that in my life. I get colds about once a year. I get the flu once in a while. Uh, my children are not perfect, even though they're nearly perfect. And my grandchildren are perfect in that way. Uh, but... Um, 
that we don't get a complete fulfillment in this world. We get intermediate fulfillments. And we should treasure them. That's what they are. But they're not the end of the story. They're not the end of the story. So I want to use this also to give you another uh, principle. And that is that we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So look at the whole story, but also let the Scriptures tell us what we are to believe about the Scripture we're, we're thinking about, okay? Uh, that's a very important principle, and I want to show you kind of how it works out in one of the most important principles of, of the Reformed faith. So what is one of the most, after Christ alone, what would be the next principle of the five fundamentals of Protestantism? Faith alone. Faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. Paul, in the passage in Romans I read just a minute ago, basically proclaims that particular truth that we are not saved by works, we're saved by faith alone. And we don't have time to read this, but if I were to do it, um, Romans 4.9, Romans 4.20, Romans 4.22, Galatians 3.6, all of these uh, proclaim the truth that we are saved by faith alone. Okay? Uh, but now I want to take us to something Luther didn't like. Somebody go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Oh, 23. Sorry about that. James, John. We're going to have to read a little context here, maybe. So let me, I'll read it for you. So James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, is not, if it does not have works, is dead. We all know that little quote, faith without works is dead. But if someone says, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works. That's very important. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So even the demons know who Jesus is. Uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith from apart works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by the works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar. Next week we're going to get to think a little more about that. You see that faith was active along with his works. So let's go all the way back to Genesis 12 for just a minute and read something we didn't read while we were there. Uh, because this is going to give us, I think, um, a place to think. Genesis 12, verse 3. If we had read on to verse 4, here's what we have read, would have read. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. So Abraham believed God and he went. Now this I think, the reason I'm bringing this up is sometimes we can proof text. And I already told you we all do that. And even Martin Luther did that. Does anybody know what Luther's response to the but the passage we read in James was? The Epistle of Straw, and he wanted to strike it out of the Bible. He wanted to just take the book out. It didn't meet his theology, and so let's just get rid of it. 
Let's just get rid of it. Right? It doesn't mean my theology. We'll just get rid of that book, and that, that'll clarify matters that I'm right. Uh, by the way, we all do that, I think, sometimes. Um, well, what I want to say is, so let's look at what we now know. The vast weight of the New Testament is we are saved by faith and not by works. The vast number of scriptures I could quote to you today, and it's not just the, the proof text that I listed, we're saved not by faith but by works. We're saved by faith, not by works. But works turn out to not be unimportant because we're told that our faith is shown in our works. So I want to get to this word faith because we in the West have a tendency, what is faith? Can somebody give me a definition? Well, it's defined as believing. Believing? So believing something to be true. Believing, the believing something to be true. And we tend to put it all up here, don't we? Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, that's not the way any Jew, including Paul, would have thought of it. Because the word in Hebrew connotes trust. Now, what is trust? It's relying on it, right? If I trust you as my lawyer then I rely on your advice. If I trust you as my doctor, then I do what you tell me to do. If I trust you as my surgeon, I believe I'll be okay if I put myself under your care and I go ahead and let you perform the surgery. <laughs> trust is an act of the heart and of the will. And a Jew would have thought of it in exactly that way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. Now, the faith is trust. It's in the heart believing a promise and acting on the basis of that because we're, we're flesh. We have no way to show trust other than flesh. And that's what James is trying to tell us. He's saying, if you believe it, you're going to live it or you don't believe it, right? <laughs> if you believe it, you're going to live it because if you believe God died for your sins then you're gonna, and you trust in that, then you're going to live free of the guilt and shame that once you had and you're going to be free to show hope and love. I'm going to give you one of my little prejudices. Faith is not the end of the Christian faith. Faith is the beginning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So faith is important because it frees us from sin so that we can love. <laughs> okay? So faith is a tool in the toolbox of Christianity. It's that tool that frees us from the past and allows us to live into the future in love, in God's will, undoing the effects of sin in our lives. So that while we must, as Protestants, uphold we are saved by faith alone, while we must understand that we can't work our way into heaven, we can't work our way into something, uh, into a relationship with God, we also cannot let go of the great truth that if we believe something, we're going to live it. We're going to act on it. Uh, be, and we're going to, our salvation is not going to be just a matter of our heads. It's going to be a matter of our hearts and our wills, our minds, and our bodies, and our soul, because we're one person. So I, I can't be Chris here and Chris here. That, that, that's not, that's a divided Chris, right? <laughs> Uh, so I can only be one Chris, and the object of the gospel is to get that one Chris to the image of Christ, right? That's the object. 
get me, get me to be what Christ was. Okay, so we've talked about intermediate fulfillments, uh, and now we talked about, we're going to talk about the final fulfillment, which is, of course, Christ. Uh, and so we will just, as we end the day, um, let's, oh, I'm not going to do the sacrifice of Abraham today. I guess I'd better do the sacrifice of Abraham. Uh, somebody read um, Genesis 22, 11 through 14. It'll set up Ron for next week. Can somebody read that for us? Yes, it's day five. And the fulfillment from Romans 8 is, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So I want to talk about, next week Ron's going to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Today the point is that the sacrificial system was not a substitute for God's action in Christ. Okay, and this little passage has to do both with faith and it has to do with God's substitution of a sacrifice for Isaac. So I want to reposition it. Uh, God tells Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice to him. And he takes his son as the sacrifice. And we're told he gets there. The boy was probably 14 years old, so he could have resisted his father, and there's no indication that Isaac did that. Uh, he gets to Mount Moriah... He builds an altar, he stacks the wood up together to light it, he binds his son, he puts his son on the roof, and then in the Hebrew, this is where knowing a little Hebrew helps a little bit, he lifts the knife, and in the Hebrew, the verb form is he's already decided to do it. He's at that moment when you've sort of begun, begun the slice and you've committed, you're committed. And at that moment, God, at that very moment, imagine if you were Abraham, the terror of that moment, at that very moment, God stops him and he sees a lamb in the bush. And Abraham is spared, Isaac is spared, and the lamb is sacrificed instead of Isaac the son. So that, first of all, this is a story of faith. Does Abraham believe God? You bet. He's committed to kill his own son on the basis of his faith that God will redeem that life and give him a son, the son of the promise anyway. So he's... He is committed by faith. He's committed by action to do this. Uh, but God stops him and creates in the history of Judaism and in our history this notion that a sacrifice could be substituted for the proper sacrifice. You get that? Because the lamb is being substituted for Isaac so that it might be 
that our sin could be atoned for by someone besides us, okay? God could provide a substitute for us. So who deserves to die because of Chris's sins? Chris deserves to die because of Chris's sins. Does Jesus deserve to die because of Chris's sins? No. I, they're my sins. I got to do them. I got all the pleasure from them, and I should pay the price of them, right? <laughs> That's just the way the world works. Um, but this principle that God is able by God's majesty to provide a substitute that will allow the son of the promise to live is important to us because who are we? We're little Isaacs. We're children of the promise, right? <laughs> we, we are recipients of the promises of God. We've been saved by faith. And so God has substituted in Jesus Christ his only begotten son, so that we might be able to escape the consequences of our own behavior. Or put it this way, the ultimate consequences for our own behavior. <laughs> that we do suffer consequences. Uh, but we don't suffer the death, the complete eradication of our spirits that we so richly deserve uh, because of what Christ did on the cross. And I think that's where I'll leave us today. Uh, I, yes? Hear and obey. It's a hard concept to get in mind, but the Jews just don't have... They, the, the Greeks have the idea that the mind and the body are separate. That's a Greek idea. The Jews never had that idea. To them, the spirit and the flesh are one thing. That it's, it's one thing. We are one, what scholars call one psychosomatic being. <laughs> our minds, our bodies, our wills, our hearts, they're all connected. We're one thing. And that's why, by the way, the resurrection of the body becomes an important part of Judaism because it, to the Jewish way of thinking, it would not be satisfactory if all that got resurrected was Chris's mind. But all of me has to be resurrected. Yeah? I like that. Be at war with your vices, at peace with your neighbors, and let every new year find you a better person. I'm sorry, I didn't. Now that one I didn't get. Yeah, sins and vices, two children of Satan. Our uh, sins and vices. So, with that, I think I'll close this in prayer. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have a, a guest speaker today. If you haven't heard Tom, he did a great job yesterday at 3 o'clock in this room. And uh, he's going to speak again at the worship service and then again after lunch. So um, if you haven't, haven't heard him yet, I think you'll enjoy it. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this first week of our study and for the promises that you have made as far back as the beginning of human history, that you are at work in our brokenness and that you, by your divine providence, will provide a way for us. Help us this Lenten season to confront our vices, as Shihan said, uh, and that we might lay them at your feet, not to dwell in them, but to lay them at your feet, asking for your forgiveness, which you so richly give us in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, that we would exit this Lenten season better people than we entered it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.